Whereas it has pleased Almighty God to call to his mercy our late Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth II, of blessed and glorious memory, by whose decease the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is solely and rightfully come to the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. We, therefore, the Lords Spiritual and Temporal of this realm, and members of the House of Commons, together with other members of Her Late Majesty's Privy Council, and representatives of the realms and territories, aldermen and citizens of London and others, do now hereby, with one voice and consent of tongue and heart, publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late Sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III. It's hard to be a human being living on planet Earth in May of 2023 and not be hearing about, reading about, or listening to discussions about the pending coronation of King Charles. Yes, Charles's big day is dominating news headlines at the moment, and it seems that the glitz and glamour of the upcoming coronation are infecting people around the globe with a case of royal fever. Well, maybe not everyone. Republic states on their website, as we approach Charles's coronation, the country needs an honest, grown-up debate about the monarchy. We need to stop and ask ourselves, can't we just choose our next head of state? No, not everyone is happy about King Charles stepping into his mother's shoes, or diamond-encrusted loafers, or gold-plated clodhoppers, or whatever it is that monarchs wear to prevent their poor, delicate royal feet from touching the earth. But while most of the public's attention is falling on the obvious issues, the monarchy's increasing irrelevance to the 21st century, the colossal waste of taxpayer resources that go towards the upkeep of the world's richest family and their multiple palaces, the dark history of slavery and other colonial abuses for which royals of the past are responsible. Few are aware of just how dark the history of the royal family is, or just how twisted Charles's vision for the future of the United Kingdom, and indeed the world, really is. I'm James Corbett of The Corbett Report, and today we're going to look beyond the headlines and talking points so that we can meet King Charles, the Great Resetter. For those who don't consider themselves royal watchers, and only know the new King of England as that buffoon who spent his entire life waiting for his mother to die, the first sign of what Charles is really like came in a viral video moment captured during the typically pompous ceremony in which he was proclaimed King. There, 
In the manic, sausage-fingered, tooth-gritted flailing of the new king is the perfect encapsulation of Charles Philip Arthur George Windsor, a.k.a. Charles III. His life has been an endless series of carefully arranged photo opportunities and ribbon-cutting ceremonies that serve no actual function other than to punctuate the dreary luxury of his royal existence. But it's in moments such as these where we see through the veil of PR and propaganda to the real Charles, a man who treats his retinue of servants like mere objects, only good for slaking his royal desires and fulfilling his regal demands. And demands there are. His Royal Highness's daily demands begin with the pressing of his royal shoelaces and the requirement that his royal bath plug be placed in precisely the right position and the royal bathtub be exactly half full of precisely tepid water. Charles's valet must then squeeze precisely one inch of toothpaste onto his royal toothbrush while the royal chefs prepare a series of boiled eggs which are numbered according to how long they were boiled so that if the prince felt that number five was too runny, he could knock the top off number six or seven. In fact, wherever Charles travels, he not only takes along a large contingent of his 124-member staff, including his butler, two valets, a private secretary, a typist, a chef, and a handful of bodyguards, he also makes sure to take his own personal food supply consisting solely of fresh organic ingredients grown on his own organic farm. Yes, King Charles is more than happy to put his John Hancock on the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Act of 2023, which, as its supporters will be happy to explain, removes barriers to research into new gene editing technology by, as its supporters will never explain, removing regulatory safeguards from whole subclasses of genetically modified organisms at the behest of, surprise, surprise, the GMO industry. But don't expect Charles to put these gene-edited frankenfoods anywhere near his lips. They're not fit for the royal gullet, don't you know? But it's important to understand that this is much worse than a spoiled brat being coddled because he happens to wear a crown. Charles's fit-for-thee-not-for-me mentality is in fact a manifestation of a particularly royal sickness. A steadfast belief that he really is superior to everyone else. Being a royal he has always considered himself to be above the average man. The blue blood in his veins is different than ours, after all. In a sense, the royals aren't wrong when they assert that the blood that flows through their veins is different than the blood that flows through us commoners' veins. As many know, the royal families of Europe do indeed suffer from a genetic blood disorder, hemophilia, one of the many defects that has resulted from centuries of inbreeding. But strangely, they don't see their so-called blue blood as a problem. Instead, they hew to a twisted belief system, one that holds that as a result of their special blood, the royals actually deserve to rule over their subjects. In order to understand this royal worldview, we have to go back to the beginning. No, not the beginning of Queen Elizabeth's reign in 1952, not to the beginning of the English branch of the House of Windsor to which she belonged, not even to the beginning of the monarchical system in England. No, we have to go back to the beginning of monarchy itself. You see, the ancient Egyptians worshipped the pharaohs as progeny of the sun god, Ra. The Japanese were told that their imperial family descended from the sun goddess, Amaterasu, and the sea god, Ryujin. 
In Europe, monarchs claimed that God himself had directly granted them a divine right to rule over their subjects. And in China, they called it the Mandate of Heaven. Yes, the ancients were taught to believe that their emperors were literal gods. The European dynasties, meanwhile, flourished for centuries under the mass delusion that these families were specifically selected by God to rule over their people. Should it come as any surprise that at some point the royals started to believe their own propaganda? But as these proto-eugenicists soon figured out, if their blood was too precious to mingle with the commoners, then that blood must be kept in the family. And so began centuries of royal inbreeding that resulted in the deformities, abnormalities, and genetic weirdness that today pervades the royal bloodlines, congenital hemophilia being just one of the most well-known examples. Perhaps the most notable example of intra-family marriage leading to genetic ruin is that of the Spanish Habsburgs, who after 500 years of ruling over vast swaths of Europe, managed to inbreed themselves out of existence. With this understanding of the proto-eugenical philosophy as our background, we can begin to make sense of the millennium-long story of the British monarchy. Alfred the Great, yada yada yada, Henry beheading wives and starting a church, blah blah blah, the madness of King George, etc, etc, Mrs. John Brown, and so on and so forth, all the way up to Eddie, seven for those keeping track at home, and the intrigues that kicked off World War I and birthed the modern world. You know, that story. To finish making sense of that history, we just need to add one other element to the story. As it turns out, the British royal family isn't very British at all. The House of Windsor only became the House of Windsor in 1917. Before that, it was Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. But the British public were a bit fired up about the Huns because of that whole, you know, World War I thing, so Windsor it became. Noting the true origins of the House of Windsor is not just some cheap anti-Germanic slur, of course. It points to something even more fundamental. These royals, connected, as we remember, through inbreeding, had much more in common with their European brothers and sisters, cousins and uncles, but I repeat myself, than they did with the populations they were supposedly ruling over. With that historical background in place, we can understand, for example, the Windsor's well-documented fondness for the eugenics-promoting Nazis. Where do you think the Nazis got their eugenical beliefs from in the first place? Given the royal pedigree of the eugenic worldview, it's perhaps unsurprising to learn that the pseudoscience of eugenics was pioneered by royal medal recipient Francis Galton, himself hailing from the celebrated and thoroughly inbred Darwin-Galton line, which boasted many esteemed fellows of the royal society. The overt ties between the Edwardian eight, for those keeping track at home, court and Hitler's eugenics-obsessed regime are well documented. The covert ties are even more intriguing. Hmm, that gives me an idea for a documentary. But it isn't just the home movies showing the future queen giving the Nazi salute, or Edward VIII hobnobbing with Hitler, or King Charles's lifelong friendship with unreformed SS officer and Bilderberg co-founder Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, or Prince Harry's predilection for Nazi cosplaying. More to the heart of the matter is Prince Philip's infamous desire to be reincarnated as a particularly deadly virus in order to contribute to the depopulation of the planet. A remark that's been checked by Snopes, so you know it's true. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. You see, 
The royals' blue-blood pomposity wouldn't be so bad if they simply felt themselves superior to the commoners in a, what, you groom your own stool kind of way. Sadly, it isn't mere snobbery that motivates them, and their great desire is not simply to be kept apart from the commoners. As it turns out, the royal family doesn't just feel superior to their subjects. They actively dislike them, and constantly scheme to subjugate them, rob them, impoverish them, and mislead them. There's something quaint about Redditors seemingly discovering for the first time that, far from some nice old man who waves to the crowds and enjoys tea and crumpets in pretty English gardens, King Charles is actually the heir to a fortune amassed via the violent subjugation of much of the world's population and the plundering of their wealth and resources. The fact that anyone could be shocked by this historical reality speaks to the naivety of the masses who cannot imagine that ruthless psychopaths conspire to amass more wealth by inflicting suffering on the world. Just wait until these dear trusting masses learn about the British East India Company, and the Opium Wars, and the Bengal Genocide, and the Boer concentration camps, and the Amritsar Massacre, etc, etc, etc. But for a prime example of the perfidy with which the British monarchy has ruled for centuries, and which gave rise to the perfidious Albion moniker, one need only look at the history of their specialty, false flag operations. Befitting the governing monarchy of a nation that's been known for its treachery for centuries, the British royals' use of false flag events to gin up public support for the persecution of their enemies likewise goes back centuries. For one prime example of that, we will have to remember, remember the 5th of November. Outside of Britain, the gunpowder plot is known only tangentially through cultural artifacts, like the references to the plot contained in V for Vendetta and the subsequent adoption of the Guy Fox mask as the symbol of Anonymous. Even in England, most will only know the official version of the story, the one compiled in the so-called King's Book, written by King James I himself. According to that official account, on the evening of November 4th, 1605, Guy Fawkes was discovered with 36 barrels of gunpowder and a pile of wood and coal in the undercroft beneath the House of Lords in Parliament, presumably preparing to blow up the building. After his apprehension, Fox was brought before the King and, cracking under the interrogation, eventually led the King's agents to the other conspirators in the plot. As it turned out, the whole harebrained scheme to blow up Parliament as it convened on the 5th of November had been hatched by the Jesuits and carried out by a ragtag group of crazed provincial English Catholics. King James then took the sensible precaution of cracking down on Catholics in England, thus ensuring that Catholic treachery would never again threaten the kingdom. Of course, this story, like so much of the history written by the winners, is total hogwash. Entire books could be written about the plot, what we really know about it, and how the official version was conjured into existence. And at least one book has. It's called The Gunpowder Plot, and it was written by Hugh Ross Williamson and published in 1952. Those who are interested in the full story are highly encouraged to read Williamson's account. Although the full truth of the plot will likely never be known, buried as it is in a sea of forged documents, tampered evidence, and official secrecy, we can say with certainty that the official story was constructed from torture testimony and forged confessions, that the King's spies were likely involved at every level of the plot, that the band of patsies who were ultimately blamed for the whole affair could not possibly have perpetrated it by themselves, and most importantly, that it provided King James with the perfect excuse to crack down on Catholics in the exact manner he desired. 
In other words, Guy Fawkes was likely neither the radical Catholic terrorist mastermind that the Court of King James made him out to be, nor the crusading anti-authoritarian hero that V for Vendetta and Anonymous pretend him to be, but rather a patsy, a dupe, or a mole who was used by the monarchy as a convenient excuse to enact draconian new laws clamping down on the king's opponents. Go figure. But the British monarchy's false flag hits don't stop there. Viewers of my World War I conspiracy documentary will already know the central role played by King Edward VII and his German-hating wife in forging the so-called Triple Entente between Britain, France, and Russia that paved the way for the Great War against the Huns. You'll likely also remember World War I conspirator Edward Mandel House's own account of his rather remarkable conversation with Edward VII's successor, King George V, on the morning of May 7, 1915. As House recounts in his intimate papers, the two fell to talking, strangely enough, of the probability of Germany sinking a transatlantic liner. Even more coincidentally, House relates that George specifically inquired what would happen if the Huns should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. Later that very day, the Lusitania was sunk, and public opinion in America turned decidedly against Germany, preparing the way for U.S. entry into the war on Britain's side. Coincidence, surely. That's ancient history, some would argue. I mean, yes, the British were responsible for backing, supporting, and enabling the Saudi royal family to begin their brutal rule of the Arabian Peninsula. And as I documented in False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, British support and collusion with the Muslim Brotherhood and with Wahhabi radicals gave birth to the modern era of false flag terrorism. But what does that have to do with King Charles? Good question. Maybe some intrepid reporter will put the question of the million-pound donation he received from the Bin Laden family to the new king. Or maybe they could ask about Princess Diana's remarkable clairvoyance in warning of her own death at the hands of... Name redacted. In October 1996, in a letter to her butler, Princess Diana expressed the fear that she would die in a car crash, and it wouldn't be an accident. I am sitting here at my desk today in October longing for someone to hug me and encourage me to keep strong and hold my head up high. This particular phase in my life is the most dangerous. X is planning an accident in my car. Brake failure and serious head injury. Given the royal family's participation in false flag events in the past, Perhaps it's no surprise that World Economic Forum Chairman Klaus Schwab invited His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales to inaugurate the Great Reset, the grand global attempt to use the generated crisis of the scandemic to completely transform the world and institute new paradigms of governance and social control. We have a golden opportunity to seize something good from this crisis. Its unprecedented shockwaves may well make people more receptive to big visions of change and global crises like pandemics and climate change know no borders and highlight just how interdependent we are as one people sharing one planet. And as we move from rescue to recovery, therefore we have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have a game. So we must use all the levers we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play. Everything I have tried to do and urge over the past 50 years has been done with our children and grandchildren in mind. 
So I can only encourage us all to think big and act now. Yes, it's no surprise to find the royal mouthpiece popping up in the defining false flag event of our times, advocating a complete re-envisioning of our economy, our way of life, and the social contract between people and their government on the back of a synthetic and constructed crisis. But if only his involvement in false flag events was the greatest of King Charles's worries. If only the new king's greatest fault was simply to have been born into a eugenics-obsessed family. If only he were the guiltless benefactor of the cheating, swindling, extortion, theft, and plunder of his forebears. If only his worst sin was his ridiculous climate hypocrisy, or his campaigning for Klaus Schwab's Great Reset, or his attempt to mask cows. If only he were a regular, run-of-the-mill tyrant, a psychopath who got off on torturing and killing others. Unfortunately for all of us, it's much worse than that. Reports of Savile's unusual behaviour in rural circles came about as details emerged of a surprise role for him as a counsellor for Prince Charles and Princess Diana during their marital difficulties, and a request from Prince Charles to help with the image of Sarah Ferguson. The public got a hint of what really goes on behind the royal family's closed castle gates when the Jimmy Savile scandal first came to light a decade ago. If you're able to cast your mind back to the innocent days of 2012, you might recall that, at the time, the existence of high-level pedophile rings, let alone high-level necrophilic pedophile rings, was considered the stuff of total conspiracy lunacy. You might also recall that the royal family's relationship to Savile was certainly problematic, to use the kids' lingo. But given what the public then knew, not necessarily more problematic than the involvement of any of the other people who had cozied up to the monstrous pedophile during the course of his career. Sure, the Queen had knighted Savile back in 1990, and any number of photographs could tell you that he was awfully chummy with Charles, yet perhaps knighthood was to be expected considering that he had seemingly dedicated much of his life to charity and had made many high-profile friends along the way. In fact, the first hard questions about who knew what when about Savile were asked of the BBC, which certainly did know about the allegations many decades before the disgusting abuser finally died. One of the things which really interested me there was your, your view about Jimmy Savile and your <laughs> knowledge at the time that it was going on. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think uh, all of us, what we call the peoples, knew what was going on with the BBC. As bad as we now know it was? Yeah, we knew. We all knew. But over the years, the who-could-have-known routine used by the Windsor's defenders has become increasingly insupportable. First, there was the revelation that Savile was so close to the royal family that he was almost made Prince Harry's godfather. Then came the increasingly damning reports on Savile's close personal friendship with Charles, culminating in the release last year of letters proving that the now King of England regularly sought Savile's advice on sensitive political matters. It's not just a couple, you know, it's not just three or four, there's absolutely loads of files of it. December 22nd, 1989. I wonder if you would ever be prepared to meet my sister-in-law, the Duchess of York. I can't help feeling that it would be extremely helpful to her if you could. 
I feel she could do with some of your straightforward common sense. 54 minutes after they'd taken off, without warning or distress signal, the airliner started to disintegrate over Lockerbie. January 27th, 1989, a month after the Lockerbie disaster. This is Jimmy giving PR advice to the royal family about how to react publicly when there's a major incident in Britain. I suppose that statistically, something like this has got to happen at some stage on a time. But of course, it only affects the community in a very small way. Jimmy advises the Queen should be informed in advance of any proposed action by family members. Jimmy suggests they should have a coordinator who's a special person with considerable experience in such matters. There must be an incident room with several independent phone lines, teletext, etc. I mean, Jimmy is advising them how to do it. What they should do, how they should act, what they should say, should they say anything. Sir Charles says to Jimmy, I attach a copy of my memo on disasters, which incorporates your points and I showed to my father, and he showed it to Her Majesty. Jimmy had sent back to Charles a five-part manual titled Guidelines for Members of the Royal Family and their staff. Jimmy seems to be a kind of unofficial chief advisor to the Prince of Wales. And on top of all of that, there's Savile's own uncomfortable admission that the knighthood had let him off the hook for his past sins. Unsurprisingly, the royal family has never had to respond in any way to public outrage about these reports. No prostitute who wants to keep his job is ever going to dare press Charles on the issue, and since Savile's crimes were only brought to light after his death, the royals could always hide behind the plausible deniability that they didn't know what Sir Jimmy was up to. They didn't even need to launch a formal process to strip Savile of his knighthood, because as it turns out, the honours automatically expire when a person dies. But as I say, the Savile scandal blew up in the bygone era of a decade ago, when the concept of political pedophile rings was still in the realm of crazed conspiracy podcasts. That all changed, of course, when the Epstein story finally broke into the public consciousness in 2019. And who just happened to be in the middle of that scandal? That's right, Prince Andrew, the brother of the current king, and the eighth in line to the British throne. A man so transparently lecherous that for decades the UK tabloids have mockingly referred to him as Randy Andy. A man who literally had to invent a scientifically unknown condition of being unable to sweat to try to prove that the allegations made against him by Epstein's victims were false. I mean, yes, there's the photo of him with his arm around an underaged girl, with intelligence handler and convicted sex trafficker Glenn Maxwell hovering in the background, but... He doesn't sweat, so uh, it's all a lie. No one is buying anything that comes out of the mouth of his royal lowness, Prince Andrew, Duke of Dork. After all, you know someone must be a public relations mess when even the royal family is compelled to revoke his titles and royal patronages to keep him out of the spotlight of public scrutiny. As we've seen, the royals didn't even dole out that form of retroactive punishment to Sir Jimmy. As we all know, the public is no longer as naive as they were in 2012, and sadly, the nightmarish reality of protected political pedophile rings is so accepted as documented fact that it's no longer mocked as conspiracy yarn. And to the surprise of no one who is familiar with the ignoble history of the royal family, the House of Windsor has been implicated in two of the highest profile pedophile scandals in recent memory. Oh, wait, make that three. So here's a rhetorical question for you. Who in the controlled mainstream media do you think will ever dare bring up this topic again now that Prince Charles 
is officially King Charles. Making this video feels like I'm telling a child all in one sitting that Santa Claus isn't real, the Easter Bunny's a hoax, and the Tooth Fairy's just your mom. But in reality, it's worse than that. It's telling fully grown adults that Santa Claus isn't real, the Easter Bunny's a hoax, and the Tooth Fairy is just their mom, and being ridiculed as a fringe loony for doing so. This isn't my first attempt at opening eyes on this subject either. Back in 2015, I made note of the absolute madness that took hold of the global media surrounding the announcement of the birth of Princess Charlotte, writing, So who's going so crazy for this royal baby? Surely no one who's familiar with the real history of the reign of the Windsors, a reign marked by the tens of millions of lives lost in the First and Second World Wars, in which the royal family had a great degree of culpability, close collaboration with the banksters that have brought us to the edge of the next Great Depression, the formation of the Anglo-American special relationship in common cause with like-minded eugenicists in America like Teddy Roosevelt, the cultivation and protection of pedophiles, of whom Jimmy Savile was just the most noticeable tip of a very large iceberg, the slaying of Diana, and any number of other atrocities that should make this family one of the most reviled in the Commonwealth they claim to rule over. And yet the media still lauds their every action, sings their praises as a venerable institution at the core of British society, dutifully acts as the royal PR mouthpiece in reporting on their charity work, and marginalizes any talk of doing away with the royal family altogether as Republican rabble-rousing. Plus a change. And now once again we have one of these royal events come along to remind us just how many people are still firmly ensconced in Normyland. After all the royals have put us through, it's flabbergasting that they're still held in such high regard. It's incomprehensible that this royal eugenicist is trotted out to be the face of the Great Reset and to lecture the peasants about how they'll have to become serfs on the neo-feudal plantation for the sake of Mother Earth. But even more disheartening is the fact that there are still vast swaths of people who believe that this family has been chosen by God himself to rule over an entire nation, or even a commonwealth. Here's to the day when this type of video is completely unnecessary, and the placing of a fancy hat on some pompous British octogenarian's head is of no significance to anyone whatsoever. One can always dream. Hello, this is James Corbett of The Corbett Report, the writer, director, and presenter of the mini-documentary-slash-podcast that you just watched or listened to on Meet King Charles, The Great Resetter. I hope you enjoyed the presentation, and if this is your first time encountering The Corbett Report, I would like you to know that every single word that you have just been listening to is available in a transcript, a hyperlinked transcript with links back to all of the source documents and videos and everything else that was contained in that documentary, please go to corporatereport.com slash Charles. 
for the entire hyperlinked transcript of that report. It is completely 100% freely available. It is a resource. I hope you will make use of it. You will also be able to find the audio and video downloads of this podcast there. And I hope if you found this presentation enlightening or useful, I hope you will spread it to the four winds and get the word out to others about this information. And if this is your first time encountering the Corbett Report, please check out CorbettReport.com and the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of audio, visual, and literary material that is available there for your free enjoyment. However, if this is not your first time encountering the Corbett Report, I would like you to know a couple of things. One, the report that you were just watching was, in fact, largely written and composed late last year when Queen Elizabeth uh, finally expired. I did release an editorial as part of my subscriber newsletter called The Dark History of the Royals, and a lot of this information was contained almost word for word in that previous report. So if you are a Corbett Report subscriber, you will already know some of this material and you'll already be familiar with it. You will be months and months ahead of the rest of the crowd. And there are a couple of different methods of subscribing. First of all, if you just want to be uh, updated by email for free, whenever I post anything to the website or the editorials that I write, you can sign up to my Substack, corbettreport.substack.com. If you want the full newsletter, which includes recommended reading and viewing and a subscriber discount for material from the New World Next Week store, then you can become a full paying member of the Corbett Report website, help support this work and make it possible in the future. You can do that either through Substack, CorbettReport.substack.com, or you can subscribe via my, my website, CorbettReport.com members. And there are many different ways to become a paid member of the Corbett Report. Your support is necessary to make media like this possible. So I hope you will consider signing up if you are a regular Corbett Report viewer. As I say, if this is your first time seeing the Corbett Report, please just explore the archives at CorbettReport.com. Thank you for your time and attention.